We're the ones we've been waiting for. Has anybody heard that phrase lately? We are the ones we've been waiting for. If we really think about it, it sums up an awful lot of what we as Unitarian Universalists are about. And it presents a solution for practically all of the concerns that stretch out before us. This tradition, the Unitarian Universalist faith, requires more personal responsibility than is expected from most faiths. It's a trade-off for that guilt that we don't use on you, for the comfort or ease of having someone else tell us what the answers are, instruct us in how to behave, what to believe. The presumption is that if one has come this far and has been brave enough to step outside the conventional leadership, one has the maturity to behave responsibly without threats of exclusion or damnation. We come here because we choose to be here, not because we're afraid not to come. Not because we're supposed to. We answer to the truths that stir stir deep within our own hearts and spirits, not the dictates of a distant hierarchy. Because of this, personal integrity comes to be a virtue of the highest order. And the depth of that integrity grows as long as we remain true to the journey which brought us here. So it is we come to live deep, to cut a broad swath, to live deliberately, and to be able to give a true account. Thomas Merton wrote, The solution of the problem of life is life itself. Life is not attained by reason and analysis, but first of all, by living. The true solutions are not those which we force upon life in accordance with our theories, but those which life itself provides for those who dispose themselves to receive the truth. Consequently, our task is to dissociate ourselves from all who have theories which promise clear-cut and infallible solutions, and to mistrust all such theories, not in a spirit of negativism and defeat, but rather trusting life itself and nature, and if you will permit me, God above all. End quote. Today is what we call here Commitment Sunday. It's the day that we officially kick off our pledge drive. I understand that um, some precursors were done last week. I was not here. And that some pledge forms were handed out. And as Claudia said earlier, you'll have an opportunity 
to bring them up later if you're ready to do that. Um, when it comes to matters of finance, every year there are dreams, and every year there are challenges. I can't imagine that any of us are oblivious to the financial troubles that are going on around us in the nation, in the world, perhaps in our own homes and families. As a result, we will all be evaluating our resources in a somewhat different way than we probably have in the past. Americans, in large part, have become accustomed to living beyond our means. We've invested mightily in every form of distraction we can find. We have run from our responsibilities to the future, but mostly I think we have run from the discomfort of sitting still and quietly with ourselves and nature. The parade of options for ways to avoid facing ourselves is endless. And the, you know, the varieties increase every day. And each one that we employ costs us that much more personal integrity. I know I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm giving up for every, each thing I do or what that one thing is costing me, but there's a trade-off for everything. Again from Thomas Merton, underlying all life is the ground of doubt and self-questioning, which sooner or later must bring us face to face with the ultimate meaning of our life. The self-questioning can never be without a certain existential dread, a sense of insecurity, of lostness, of exile, a sense that one has somehow been untrue, not so much to abstract moral or social norms, but to one's inmost truth. Dread in this sense is the profound awareness that one is capable of an ultimate bad faith with himself and with others, that one is living a lie. Be that as it may, we must now as a nation and as individuals relearn one art that generations before us mastered. Uh -huh. That of carefully examining our behavior, getting to the heart of what really matters to us, prioritizing and then directing our investments of time, money, and talent to things we most value. We must begin again to make choices in alignment with our own integrity and what we care about on levels deeper than we most often care to consider. I often call up the example of when the members of All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church in Shreveport decided to undertake the building of their first church. People didn't live on loans the way that we do now, or credit cards. Or, or, uh, and the members of the congregation at that time 
were so committed to that dream. That was what they wanted. They wanted to have a building. They were so committed to that dream that some people mortgaged their homes to help pay for it. I don't think we see that kind of commitment in the world much anymore. I'm, you know, I'm, that's not pointed at us. That's to be, that's about everybody. But why is that? What kind of differences have snuck in, or or have we? What what is it that we've learned that's caused us to see things a different way now? I think we all know that if we want to see what we really care about, one way to do that is to follow the money. What do you spend your money on? Uh, For example, what ten things consistently get the top, you know, portion of, of your income? Food, rent or mortgage, car insurance, health insurance if you're lucky, utilities, vehicles, other family members. And what's next? Travel, furniture, entertainment, clothes, hobbies. Maybe your art. Where in your list does the church fall and where do you think where do you think it belongs? And how does that line up with what you consider its value to be? what purpose it serves in your life or what purpose you think it serves in the community. There's a verse from the Christian Testament that appears in both Matthew and Luke that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If that's an uncomfortable reference, it also appears in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows as an inscription on the tombstones of Dumbledore's mother and sister. So it's given credence elsewhere. The notion is one that has some, has some truth to it. Being responsible with our money does not mean giving up our dreams, even big dreams. Thoreau wrote, if you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. There is where they should be. Now put the foundations under them. We're simply being brought back to the reality and necessity of building the foundations under our dreams. As a country... in the world and certainly in our church.
We don't give up indulging ourselves either. But rather than indulging those guilty pleasures of distraction that rob us of deeper knowing and deeper joy, that keep us from meaningful engagement with the world around us and from spiritual fitness, rather than developing the pathologies that inevitably go with avoidance and denial, we instead return to indulging that which has genuinely has genuine integrity for us. And we always know when we're being true to ourselves. At least if we stop and listen. We balance what we decide to give and what we give to with the deeper sense of what we are being called to do and what we are being called to. And we give out of love and truth rather than obligation. And I want to share part of a simple, uh, a sample stewardship letter from the denomination. Churches exist because friends and members do the necessary volunteer work and pay the bills. If everyone does a little of the work, it gets done in good order. Some teach religious education. Others serve on committees or come to work parties. It becomes a way to not only help the church, but to get to know others. And if everyone makes a responsible financial contribution, our church can expand and grow with new programs and community outreach and social justice programs. We know that people are in varying life circumstances. Some are caring for elderly relatives or have health concerns or medical bills of their own. Others are between jobs. We do not ask that you place undue hardship upon yourself. Neither should you ple- your pledge be easy. Rather, it should reflect a serious commitment to the place you have chosen as your spiritual home, the place where your children will be educated in religious matters, the place where you will continue your own search for religious meaning. Can't help but notice that attendance is a little off today. (laughs) Do you think it might have something to do with the topic? Just just wondering, you know, it's a possibility. I also know a lot of people are traveling. Uh, but it occurs to me when I look out that, that Commitment Sunday is not people's favorite most of the time. But actually, I've been looking up a lot that, I've, that I want to use in the future if I'm here uh, on other occasions like this that will make it act a very nice celebration with uh, some more music and and parties. (laughs) Often in various Christian traditions, when one hears pledging discussed, it is closely linked with the idea or the teaching about tithing. The biblical resources for tithing, the references are all Old Testament or Hebrew Testament. They're not 
from the New Testament or the Christian Testament. And they were references to a tenth portion of everything that you produced from the land. These were farmers predominantly, or the people for which these instructions were written. And they're from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, which are the books of law. And if you paid any attention to those, they've gotten a lot of notoriety for some of the other laws that they instruct us for, like not eating shellfish or handling pig flesh, which would mean no football. (laughs) If I'm not mistaken, there's also instructions that it's okay to give your daughter to visitors for their pleasure. But anyway, growing up in the Baptist church, I heard a lot about tithing, but it was always discussed as something that you did not just of money, but of your time and your talents as well. Many, particularly of modest means, find a tithe to be an unmanageable burden. Nevertheless, there are many Christians who do find a way to make that sort of commitment to their church communities, their their church homes. In my 20-some-odd years as a Unitarian Universalist, I have never heard a single fiery call for us to pledge a tithe. Who's laughing? I like that, but but okay. they've long experience in Unitarian Universalism. There, that laugh comes from. Okay, I did run across something in the in an old UU World magazine that I found to be quite interesting about percentages and pledges. The article was about the Unitarian Church of Staten Island, New York. It's a congregation of about 124 members, which makes it smaller than our congregation. And from the other statistics, I gathered that it's a a modest middle-income church. Um, Members of their finance committee were sitting around discussing why the tithing tradition was so common in other religious traditions. And at some point, they decided to go around the table and ask each other what percentage they actually gave to their own church. And pretty much the percentages fell in the 1% and 2% kind of category. The interim minister of the time said, well, what if we double that amount? And it wasn't, according, according to that same minister, it wasn't a far jump to move to 5%. Well, one of their financial concerns was fair compensation for their staff. The interim minister organized a service honoring the staff in which the staff shared their stories. And after the congregation heard the stories, they began to see fair compensation as a social action issue. Uh, 
the church went through their process of canvassing members, and the canvas was spread farther than usual. Uh, all uh, committee chairs were asked to canvass two or three people. I mean, they they spread it out not just among a few, but among a lot of people, uh, so that nobody was burned out by the undertaking. And at the end of their pledge drive, 90% of their members had pledged to double or triple their financial contributions to the church, either pledging 5% or pledging 3% and uh, with the goal of increasing it to 4 the next year and 5 the next year. Commitment's an interesting thing. On an experiential level, there's a vast difference between things that we're committed to that feel obligatory and things that we commit to that feel voluntary. And it's not infrequently that a commitment because of some passing time or a change in circumstances can move from one category into the other. This building was planned and built under one set of circumstances and has been maintained under very different ones for a long time. And not, and not always the same. I mean, those have changed also. But our challenges have been many, and we have met every single one of them. Regularly, we're called on to reevaluate our standings. This is the time to evaluate your own commitment to the congregation. Or, or at least this is the time that we ask you to. I don't enjoy thinking about money. I don't enjoy working with money. I don't enjoy talking about money. And the truth of the matter in my life is the tighter I hold on to it, the less I have. But I did ask to be the speaker today on this issue for several reasons. First of all, I believe wholeheartedly that the members of this church care deeply about this church. I believe that you are sincere in your concern for all the ideals and principles that we stand for and that draw us together. I believe the members of this church care deeply about human rights, about the environment, and about people in poverty. I believe we all want to help create a more peaceful and just world. Second, I believe the members of this church are sincere in our commitments to our own spiritual journeys, even if we take breathers along the way. Third, I believe we can accomplish whatever we set our sights on with one exception. If we would want the church to stay the way it is, we might as well face it right now, that's not going to happen. If we try to keep it the same, it's the same thing as beginning the process of atrophy. There are a lot of things that we can do, even unconsciously, subsurface that will keep a church the same size that it is. And it's, it's detrimental to the health of the church, but I'm not going to get into all of that stuff. Keep walking forward. 
work for change together, never turning back. Well, finally, I believe that the times that are a change in will bring trials most of us have not yet known. But will also ultimately bring wondrous outcomes. A greener, healthier world, better international relations, a more just society, a reconnection with parts of life we've grown to neglect including ourselves. Between now and then, there will most likely be a recalibrating in many regards. There may perhaps be significant belt tightening. But as a community, we can accomplish an awful lot of things together that can help us through whatever transitions come along. I was talking with the choir about some of that earlier this week, or what... I envisioned. All souls represents a steadfast hope that the broader community needs. And committing to live more truly in line with our own convictions, we serve each other, we serve ourselves, and we serve the world. Give yourself to love. Give from love, love of your own spirit, love of our common ideals, and love of divine principle. Live deliberately. Face the turnings and the uncomfortable to meet all challenges with authentic life. No guilt, just responsibility. We are the ones we've been waiting for.